I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Martin Arnold, the FT's banking editor. Joining me in the studio today is Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, and Thomas Hale, our capital markets correspondent. While on the phone, we'll be hearing from Simon Peters, portfolio manager at Algebras. We also have our regular contribution from Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, who's been talking to Johannes Strobel, assistant professor of finance at the NYU Stern School of Business. This week, we'll be taking a deeper look at why the banking sector is being gripped by investor anxiety about its health. And as a specialist investor in bank bonds and equity, Mr. Peters from Algebras will hopefully shed some light on what is driving all this. Secondly, we will look at an attempt by Citigroup to exempt its top London executives from tough new banker accountability rules in the UK. And finally, we'll hear Mr Strobel at the NYU Stern School of Business tell us why he thinks quantitative easing and negative interest rates are ineffective in boosting lending. So firstly, to the recent wobble in investor confidence in banks, which has seen a big sell-off in the shares and bonds of banks across the world, particularly in Europe. Let me start by asking Simon at Algebris, what is driving all this? Hi, Martin. Yes, uh, well, there's no one particular point, but nonetheless, I think the market's got itself into a bit of a pickle here. The market has noticed that growth is weakening, GDP is weakening. Oil has clearly fallen substantially from $100 to $30, and banks do have loans out to the oil sector. There have been a number of regulatory issues, especially surrounding AT1 coupons, whether banks can actually pay those coupons or not. And I think what's been happening is as a number of these things have come together, essentially you've had the uh, investors almost try and replay 2008-2009, where clearly owning banks were not good for a portfolio's health. And so really it's a case of shoot now or rather sell your banks now and see if there's a problem later. Now, I take a different view on that, which is essentially that uh, actually Europe's growing reasonably well. Unemployment's coming down to a low since 2011. Capital ratios are two to four times what they were in 2008. So the bank sector is much stronger. Core X to tier one ratios, which is what really we look at as a sort of portfolio manager, they're at about 11%, which is, as I said, two to four times what they were in 08 and very comparable to the US now. So I look at it very much in a different standpoint. So you are going against the main tide of markets recently on banks, and you think that actually there's a lot of misunderstanding driving this, which is interesting. I mean, can we just address the particular point of AT1s or COCOs, these kind of hybrid debt instruments that convert into equity when a bank starts to get into trouble or when a bank's capital falls below a certain level? Why have we seen a big sell-off in this market? What is causing all this? Well, These are a new instrument, the AT1s, and as soon as capital goes down below a preset limit, these AT1s convert into equity. And they haven't been tested before, but with, I think, a number of things happening in the last few weeks, we're having a reassessment of growth within Europe, but also whether some of these COCOs will convert. And because Deutsche Bank, for example, made a large loss in Q4 of this year, a lot of it was a write-down of goodwill 
and doesn't actually affect its capital ratios. Nonetheless, that brought it to the fore, where investors started thinking, would Deutsche pay coupons? And it took actually a week before Deutsche Bank then came out and said, of course, we can pay coupons, and here are our reserves, and they disclosed this. But until that point, investors started, in a way, panicking about whether they would be getting their coupons or whether they'd be converted. And that was really a misunderstanding as far as how much capital these banks actually have, which is really quite high. And then equally, their reserves that they have, which is to do with MDAs, quite technical things. But nonetheless, that led to a bit of a panic. Just to play devil's advocate for a minute, Simon, I mean, you could say that with negative interest rates across a lot of Europe, concerns about the outlook for global economic growth and the fears that central banks have you know, run out of bullets to fire in this battle and the feeling that in Europe in particular, we still haven't completed the journey on building bank balance sheets to the strength that we would like them to be that some of these new instruments, which, as you said, are untested, there could be some accidents along the way, especially if the global economy continues to slow down and we see uh, increasingly difficult climate for banks. And investment banking, of course, is facing a particularly tough time. We saw that in the results of a lot of the Wall Street banks in the last month or so. In fact, I'm going to flip that on its head and actually say, well, you've just had six really tough years that included a double-dip recession in Europe. And this is when the banks actually only had maybe 3 4 or 5% core equity tier one. And what you've seen over the last five years, when, for example, in 2011, 2012, we did have a recession in Europe, these banks were still putting on a lot of capital, and they've now built that up to 11 12 13% core equity tier ones, even from that point. So if you even take Lloyd's in the UK, in 2011, it had a 6% core equity tier one, it's now 14% today. So I think there's been a little bit of a misperception of how much these banks have delevered and have added capital over the past five years. And they've actually been doing it in actually a tougher economic environment than we see today. So although we expect the economy to be slowing from here, if you look at the US, it's still likely to grow 1.5% to 2% this year. And Europe is still likely to grow between 1% and 1.5% this year. So although we think there's still some journey to go on regulatory capital, pretty much we are 90% done, whereas only three, four years ago, we were really 50% done. So I appreciate you can be cautious, but equally, unless you expect there to be a minus 5 6% GDP shock, really, these banks do have enough capital. Now, I've given a very generic version there. Out of, say, 60, 70 large banks in Europe, we would say, you know, there are 65 pretty strong banks with decent capital, but there are still banks that do need a bit more work. And mostly those are the small banks that haven't really done that much since the crisis to resolve themselves. But all the household names, especially the GCFIs that you know, have been building capital up very fast indeed. The investment banks, although we in the market and the media like to talk about them a lot because they're very well known, actually they're a relatively small part of the banking industry. So yes, Deutsche Bank, Credit Suisse, UBS, even the Barclays have their issues in that they still got to delever and they are actually furthest away from actually completing their journey. It feels like they've got three or four more years to really get up to those sort of levels where, for example, Lloyd's is or some of the retail banks in continental Europe already are. But you're saying that this sell-off is creating a buying opportunity. Are you seeing investors in the US and elsewhere coming in and picking up bargains in the debt markets for bank debt and also equity? I would say selectively, yes. But clearly, a lot of people 
have been selling for the last six, seven weeks. And it'll take them several weeks or several months really to come back to the market. But what we are seeing over the last two weeks are really those people who've got an allocation of money that they can put into the markets now. And they are doing that. And we've seen some inflows as well at our firm. And you can see that's the sort of greed and fear argument working at play where people see that there's really an opportunity now. And you really do have to explain every single piece of the pie, as it were, about growth, about oil, about capital, about these regulatory issues. But when they hear about that and they get comfort behind those issues, they are prepared to put money into the sector now, both on the credit side and the equity side. Simon, thank you very much for joining us. Um, Very interesting comments. So over to you, Tom. What's your analysis of why this particular 81 Cocos market has been so volatile recently? Well, I think one of the most interesting things about the 81 market is the fact that these bonds straddle this no man's land between debt and equity. Part of the confusion and chaos in the market has been around the fact that it's quite difficult to categorise them. And from a market's perspective, they're not placed in major indices. So when there's huge selling pressure, there isn't that natural buying demand from the big indices that are such a big part of global financial markets now. So this is one of the explanations for why some of these bonds are trading at such distressed levels. Often, in certain cases, for example, Santander, where there's been no major news around the bank, but the shares have been selling off and the 81 bonds have been following the shares down. So there's been a lot of confusion in the market about why the sell-off has been so ferocious. Why does this matter, Tom? I mean, you know, we heard Simon talking about how this is an untested market. Why are these securities important in the whole issue of bank security and solidity? I think there's two big points there. One is that they're a very new asset class and they're potentially a kind of canary in the coal mine asset class. They might provide indications about kinds of risk in the banking system that other asset classes traded in financial markets don't necessarily provide that trade very differently. I think the second and more important point is that 81 bonds, and this point extends across the gamut of bank debt, which has been transformed post-crisis. 81 bonds have been created by regulators to transfer risk from governments and taxpayers to institutional investors in financial markets. And if the market is kind of struck down by these levels of volatility and chaos and people can't issue anymore, that solution, that cure for the crisis and the loss of taxpayer money during the crisis doesn't work anymore. We've got tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of issuance to come from European and global banks on the AT1 side. And currently, it doesn't look like they'll be able to issue. So that is a problem, obviously. Laura, can you just quickly chip in? Because we saw some recovery in the banking sector on Monday. The shares have fallen again today, so we still quite a lot of volatility out there. What's the mood at the moment? I think even though we have seen some more falls today, there is a sense of things returning to normality. I mean, most banks are down today, but the amount that they're down is far less of um, a dramatic swing than what we saw last week. Of the large banks, the worst today is Standard Charter. They're down about 6.8% now. They were down 7.5% earlier. To put that into context, last week we saw Deutsche Bank Credit Suisse fall 10%, 12% in a day. So while we are still seeing a lot of day-to-day volatility, the falls are getting smaller and the rises are getting smaller. So there is a sense that things are starting to taper off. As that happens, then you also have a number of analysts who are issuing notes that kind of focus on the fundamentals. And most of the notes do seem to say that they do not have concerns about the capital of the banks. So in theory, if all the analysts are saying that and if their investors are actually paying for those notes and reading those notes and actually taking that advice, then we should see 
not the same kind of price volatility as we've seen in the last fortnight, certainly. Thank you very much. Now, shifting to one of those big banks, Citigroup, and a novel way that the uh, US bank has found of potentially sparing its top London executives from new banker accountability rules in the UK. What is this wheeze, Laura? And does it look like it'll be approved by regulators? It looks like it is going to work. So this is quite interesting. What they've done is that the UK regulators brought in the senior managers regime. They announced it last year. It comes into force in March. And the idea was that all of the senior decision makers in the banks, they would all have enhanced personal accountability. So they would face fines, sanctions, all this stuff. And they'd also have to very clearly document who was actually responsible for everything. What they've argued at the Citigroup is that if you have a senior global manager sitting here in the UK and you also have somebody who sits beneath them who runs the UK business, the Europe, Middle East and Africa business, then the book should effectively stop with the person at the lower level and the global manager shouldn't actually become part of the senior manager's regime. Now, it only affects a handful of people so far. We spoke to several other banks. Nobody wanted to talk publicly about it. One bank, JP Morgan, said that they definitely aren't doing it. But when you talk to other banks, they're saying, hmm, I wish we thought of that. So (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised to see other banks taking a similar line because the argument is that the FCA and the PRA, their overall concern is what happens in the UK market. So if you have someone who is a global head of some function sitting here and he's making a decision which impacts something in the US or in South Africa or somewhere which is not the PRA or the FCA's beef, essentially, should they really have the oversight? Should they really be able to sanction you for something which didn't have any impact on their own market, particularly if you do have somebody carrying the can for the UK? And what about pay? The EU bonus cap applies to executives of the US banks who are based here, in theory, but are they attempting to get these global heads exempted from the bonus restrictions as well that apply to people based here? As far as we know, no, because those go to the material risk takers and you are a material risk taker because you're here. So I haven't heard of anyone trying to get out of that. It is really the senior manager's regime that they're looking at. Thanks very much. Okay, now over to Ben McClanahan, the US banking editor in New York, who's been talking to Johannes Strobel, assistant professor of finance at the NYU Stern School of Business, about how quantitative easing, and I guess by extension negative interest rates, are ineffective at boosting lending. Johannes, welcome. Why don't we start with that paper you put out a few months ago and that you've updated this week? It's on policies aimed at reducing banks' cost of funds, and they're not quite as effective as they were advertised. Yeah, that's correct. So um, the sort of the beginning of, of observation for our project was the idea that, look, if you want to stimulate lending to households in particular, and you want to target households that would actually respond to increased access to credit by consuming, there's two things you need to do. The first thing you need to do is you need to figure out who those households are. Giving an extra $1,000 of credit to Bill Gates isn't going to get him to change his behavior at all, while some other households might be very constrained and might actually spend almost one for one for any extra credit you get. So to the extent that some of these reductions in the cost of funds were um, aimed at increasing credit flow to households with the aim of getting them to consume and potentially consumers out of the recession, you need to target households that have what we call a high marginal propensity to borrow or marginal Mm -hmm. propensity to consume. So those are households where if you give them an extra dollar of credit, they would actually go and borrow and consume. 
And so what we do in this paper is, you know, it's an empirical project where we look at a large um, number of um, credit card accounts held mm -hmm. at the eight largest U.S. banks. And what we do is we try and establish which are the households that are constrained and which ones are the households that are not. To do that, we, um, we sort of use an empirical strategy where we compare households that are very, very similar on observable characteristic, but in an almost random way get assigned very different credit limits. And if you then track these households over time, you can look at the differential borrowing behavior to try and determine, you know, how households that didn't get the higher credit limit would have responded had they gotten the higher credit limit. And so what we find in that empirical analysis is that households at the bottom of the credit worthiness distribution in the US, this is measured by the FICO score. Mm -hmm. So households with low FICO scores actually very responsive during this great recession period to extra credit. So you give them an extra dollar of credit, we find that households in the bottom quarter of the credit worthiness distribution spend 60 cents on the dollar okay. for extra credit channel to these guys. But on the other hand, people in the bottom 50 or 25% of the FICO score distribution, credit worthiness spectrum, those households are completely unresponsive to extra credit. And so sort of the first finding in our paper, but maybe not surprising, is, look, you're only going to have successful stimulatory policy if you can channel extra credit to those low FICO score households, low credit worthiness households who want to respond. And then mm. the second question is trying to figure out, well, in response to lower cost of funds, do banks actually want to extend extra credit to those low FICO score guys that you know, would consume more, or do they rather prefer extending extra credit to higher FICO score borrowers? And here our finding is that exactly they would much prefer giving extra credit to high FICO score borrowers right. than low FICO score borrowers. So what's the lesson for the Fed? Is there a sense that the Fed has to work together with the government to supplement uh, monetary policy with fiscal policy? Yeah, I think that's a very, um, very interesting question. So I think kind of a, a, as a headline takeaway from our paper, is that just these broad credit expansions making it cheaper for banks to refinance themselves in the hope that they would then pass on that extra credit to households is not a particularly well-targeted policy in the sense that it doesn't seem to reach those households that want to borrow the most and that it disproportionately reaches sort of wealthier, higher credit worthiness households that don't want to spend a lot. And yeah. so, as you sort of mentioned, one, you know, one way of potentially targeting those lower credit worthiness, lower income households more directly might be through fiscal policy. So for example, um, the extension of unemployment benefits is mm -hmm. a policy that is known to do very well at targeting households that are cash strapped and that would actually use the extra dollar you put in their pocket to go out and spend and consume and, um, and, and therefore stimulate the economy. So yes, the reductions in the cost of funds, at least in terms of stimulating aggregate demand, um, might not be the best targeted policy and you might want to look to sort of a broader set of, of policy tools instead. Finally, um, it seems the world is, is hell-bent on negative interest rates. Uh, Japan is there already, the, uh, Europe is there already, uh, the US is, is thinking about the technicalities. If we were to go to a negative uh, regime in the US, would that be compounding a, a policy error then? So I think at a first order approximation, you can think of going from an interest rate of essentially zero to an interest rate of minus one in somewhat similar terms as you can when you think about going from an interest rate of one to an interest rate of zero, right? Again, trying to increase the opportunity cost that banks face relative to lending, right? Previously, they would get 1%. And you basically say you get nothing anymore. Now you say, I'm going to penalize you if you're not lending, mm -hmm. right? And so, again, you know, some of the underlying motivations for these policies is to encourage banks to extend more credit to households and firms with, again, sort of the hope that this will stimulate additional aggregate demand. And the fear might be that for the very same reason that going from one to zero didn't channel credit to those households that were particularly keen on borrowing, 
going from zero to minus one might not do the very same thing. And again, you know, when when we looked um, in our study, it made a lot of sense for banks to not want to extend extra credit to low FICO score households. Right? You give them extra credit, and they will default on you at much higher rates. And so moving from zero to minus one, I can't see that being very effective at getting banks to lend to these people because they might rather lose a percent keeping the cash at the Fed mm -hmm. relative to losing six or seven percent when they lend out that money to the low FICO spectrum of the population. The initial objective of these policies very, very clearly was to extend extra credit. By the way, this is not just an American phenomenon. In Europe, you have the funding for lending scheme mm -hmm. at the Bank of England, and you have the targeted longer-term refinancing operations at the ECB. These are policies that have been set up over the past few years, again, with the exact aim of getting banks to lend more. And the ECB, every quarter, has to come out and announce that maybe the take-up on the you know, longer-term refinancing operations wasn't as large as they'd hoped. And, you know, we, we don't have data on Europe, but the story might be very similar to what we find in the U.S., that it's just not profitable to give extra credit to, you know, those firms that want more credit. Johannes Strobel, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week. All that's left to do is to thank Simon, Laura, Tom, Ben and Johannes for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Keane. Until next week. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com. Goodbye.